Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton. We're continuing with our series on pulmonary embolism. Part one, we discussed basically the clinical workup and some of the literature regarding the PIOPED use of BQ and the PIOPED 2 using CT. In this section, we're going to talk about basically the technique for performing CTPA. There are many different ways to perform the study. Often people will use a fixed delay. So that means typically they're injecting at three to five cc's a second. They give anywhere from 120 to 150 cc's of IV contrast, and they would use a standard delay, typically around 20 seconds from the start of the injection. And you know what? That works for the majority of patients. It, you'll have poor results if the patient has a bad cardiac output, bad cardiac function. So you may not want to use it in those patients, or you may want to wait a little bit longer. So here's an example of a fixed delay, very obvious pulmonary embolism, saddle embolism across the bifurcation of the pulmonary artery and extending into the lower lobe branches. You could also use a test bolus. Um, we, don't, we actually don't use it for this, but some people do. So a test bolus would be you give a small test injection similar to what you do for a cardiac study, but this time the ROI goes in the main pulmonary artery, and then you calculate the peak time for each individual patient, and then you add about four seconds. Um, in theory, it should work very well. In practice, it doesn't work that great, but it's still a more a way to individualize the timing for patients, especially patients that you think may not have the standard um, cardiac output and may have decreased cardiac output or very fast cardiac output. It would be helpful to use this. We do use bolus tracking, and many people use that for this indication. So what you do is you put the ROI in the main pulmonary artery on your reference scan. You set the trigger. This varies. We played around with different triggers. Usually use 150. Sometimes we use 120. And basically the acquisition would start when the main pulmonary artery reaches the set threshold that you've programmed in. Uh, accurate ROI placement is critical. So you, if you're not exactly in the pulmonary artery, then that's going to throw off your study. So here's an example of bolus trigger. There's a topogram that we would take first. Then you have the non-contrast study. Then put an ROI in the main pulmonary artery. You could see the first scan here is 21. Second scan, 55 Hansfield units. The third scan is 158, so that will trigger the start of the study. And you could see here's the study. Very, very nice study with high opacification and high Hansfield units of the pulmonary artery. So that's a very good study. Here's another example of bolus trigger. There's the topogram and the reference scan. Place the ROI in the main pulmonary artery. You can see it starts out at 7, then it's 151, so the trigger is going to start. In this case, it's a good study, but it's not great. And that's what I mean by this technique. You would think it would be perfect every time, but it's not. So in this case, it's an okay study, but you can see that the aorta is much brighter than the pulmonary arteries. Part of the reason was, I think for a while, we were using a small ROI. You don't want a tiny ROI because then the measurements you're going to get are going to have a lot of noise. So you want to make the ROI as large as you can without um, risking having it come out of the pulmonary arteries. So here's a larger ROI patient. We start off with negative 4 Hounsfield units, so that's a little unusual. But then the second one is 84, then 153, so the trigger starts. You can see beautiful study. So this is like the perfect PE study, right? Very nice pacification of the pulmonary arteries, not a lot of contrast in the aorta. Here's one where it triggered on the first scan. So the first one came up 159. Gorgeous study. Actually, this is really good, right? The pulmonary arteries are completely opacified, very little contrast in the aorta at all. You can see this patient has other issues, has pulmonary uh, pleural effusion and has adenopathy, a patient with sarcoid, I believe. 
In this patient, again, a beautiful, excellent opacification of the pulmonary arteries. You can see there's a large thrombus in the left pulmonary artery extending into the branches. It's a coronal image, again, showing it's almost occlusive thrombus there on the left. In this patient, using the same technique, it's good opacification. It's not perfect. And as you can see, the aorta and the pulmonary artery is almost opacified to the same degree, but there's enough opacification of the pulmonary arteries to be able to detect a pulmonary embolism. So that one I would say is good, but not great. Here's another example of good opacification. Sometimes even if you have suboptimal opacification, you still find the pulmonary embolism. So although this isn't a great study for PE, you can still see the clot in the left pulmonary artery. There's a coronal image uh, showing you some of the central vessels. This one is, I wouldn't even say it's good, it's adequate in this case because you see the clot, especially in the right lower lobe pulmonary arteries. The trouble with these studies that are suboptimal is if you don't see a clot, you're always wondering, is it because there's not one there or is it because you're limited by your technique? Here's the coronal. Again, you can see the thrombus mainly in the right pulmonary arteries. So here's another example of suboptimal optic, uh, opacification. So this was not a great study, but you can see you can still see some thrombus in the right lower lobe pulmonary arteries. This one is poor opacification. So you're really stuck in these patients. For various reasons, you can have suboptimal studies, and we'll kind of go through those. But in this case, if you see a PE, then great. But if you don't see one, I think you're going to have to be very careful and say you don't see one, but it's very suboptimal opacification. If there remains a clinical suspicion, they could consider either repeating the CT or maybe performing a VQ scan. This is an article published on bolus tracking, and basically 126 patients were referred to undergo CT to look for pulmonary embolism, and they used bolus tracking, and they also used an automated tube current modulation. Basically, they were trying to say, could you decrease your radiation and still maintain your specificity and sensitivity? And what they found was, first of all, that age showed a moderate but significant positive correlation to vessel enhancement. So basically, the older patients tended to have a better study. Also, the weight was important. The heavier patients had more problems and suboptimal studies. And also that the signal to noise and the contrast to noise were higher in patients who got the contrast media through peripheral catheters. So basically, it's better to have a peripheral catheter high injection rate than try to inject through central lines, especially if you have to hand inject. If you can power inject through those purple central lines, then that will work. This was a study that looked at individual scan delay, so basically bolus tracking to individualize it to the patient based on fixed delay. And you can see the results were very similar. You would think that the individualized scan delay would be more accurate than just a fixed delay, and it's actually not in most cases. In this study, they were looking at the mean contrast time, so it varied from patients between 4 and 26 seconds. And a lot of that does correlate with gender and age. It doesn't typically correlate with patient weight or things like that, so it's hard to predict who's going to need a shorter delay scan and who's going to need a longer delay scan. That's why even though you do your technique perfectly, sometimes you don't get good results. In this study by Jones in 2005, they looked at all the CTA exams they did over a two-year period. At that time, they had a 4 and 16 slice scanner, and they found 237 that they thought were you know, non-diagnostic or very bad scans. And when you look at those, 74% was related to motion, and 40% of them were related to poor contrast enhancement. So it's definitely a problem. Basically, for in the control group, the patients had much higher Hansfield units in the main pulmonary artery, you can see 339, versus the group that was indeterminate where the mean 
Huntsfield units in the main pulmonary artery was only 245, so almost 100 less. If you look at PA enhancement, this was an article from 2002 using single slice scanners. Um, they looked at patients who had suboptimal enhancement and they wanted to know was there a reason why. So in 45 patients where the aorta enhanced brighter than the pulmonary artery, even though they did their technique perfectly, they did echocardiogram. And they found that 36% of those, sorry, 36 of those patients had a patent foramen ovale and three of those patients had an ASD. So even though the tech does everything right, sometimes you won't get a great study because the patient has maybe a subclinical patent foramen ovale or ASD or even VSD that's causing the blood to shunt from the right heart to the left. And that's why they're not getting good opacification of the pulmonary arteries. There's some controversy of what type of contrast is best for uh, CTPA. Um, you know, there's this argument, maybe you should ISO as molar contrast. So they thought that because it's more viscous, maybe you get more sluggish flow, and maybe then you'll get more contrast staying in the pulmonary arteries. Um, it is true that especially for cardiac exam, it's better for on a first pass, but that's not really applicable to the pulmonary artery studies. So some people think it may help to use it. There are other studies that show it didn't make any difference. In this one, ISO's molar contrast, 102 patients. They were randomized either to iodixanol or iohexol, and they found that there was decreased pulmonary artery enhancement by 42 Hounsfield units in the iodixanol group. And, but increased lower extremity enhancement in the same group. There's another study from 2005, similar setup. They either got iodixanol or iohexol, and here it didn't really make that much difference. So you can see the iohexol group mean pulmonary artery was 252 versus the iodixanol group mean pulmonary artery was 257. So it's, you know, it's basically your preference. At Hopkins, we do use iodixanol for our pulmonary angiograms. So what kind of technique do you use? What kind of slice thickness do you use? This varies from institution to institution. You want to use your thin collimators, that's for sure. And then what slice reconstruction you use for the radiologist to review is based on preference. We always start out with three millimeter slices for the review of the radiologist, but we always do a second slice, either 0.75s or 1.25s that are available for the radiologist to use if they need it. Here's an example of what was kind of a subtle pulmonary embolism on the five millimeter slices, but it was much more obvious when you use the thinner slices. So for the radiologist, they can review the thicker slices. If they see a pulmonary embolism, they can stop there. If they see a question, questionable abnormality, they can go to the thinner slices. Or even if they think it's normal on the thicker slices, it's probably worth reviewing the thinner slices because some of those emboli in the peripheral arteries can be very, very tough on thicker slices. In this study from 2007, AJR, the purpose was to look at could you decrease the radiation dose and still get a good study. And so what they did is they used ER patients who were being evaluated for pulmonary embolism, and then they had the computer change things around to simulate low-dose technique. And they had radiologists review it, and they were blinded as to what the radiation-calculated dose for each patient was. And then they looked at their results, and they found that at reduced radiation doses, the sensitivity and the positive predictive value for PE diminished significantly. So this is not a study where you want to try to decrease the radiation dose, because you will definitely impact your sensitivity and specificity in some cases. So if you're one of the institutions that does the CTV in 
addition to the CTA, then we'll just talk a couple minutes about that. At Hopkins, we actually don't do that very often. And the reason is that, first of all, most of our rule-out PE studies are negative, And you certainly wouldn't want to give a huge amount of radiation dose to the pelvis, especially in young people. Um, and also, we have very good Doppler ultrasound. So often the clinicians will order the CT for the chest and then the Doppler ultrasound to look for the venous thromboembolism. But if you're going to do it, usually patients... Uh, Clinicians would order the CTPA plus the CTV, so you would do your CTA, then you would wait, and you basically scan from the iliac crest to the calf, although there's some people who argue you should go below the calf. Uh, most people would stop at the calf. And then you need a delay about two and a half minutes to three minutes, depending on your scanner. And you don't really need thin slices. You could use five millimeter slices for this. And you can look in this is kind of a compilation of some of the studies that were um, published in 2000, 2001, and actually looking for DVT-CT was very good. It's just added radiation dose, and venous Doppler is excellent study, and I think in most cases you could probably get away with the venous Doppler and not have to do the CT, but at some institutions they like to combine the CTV with the CTA. Okay, that's a quick summary of the technique performing CT pulmonary angiograms and CT venograms if you want to um, include that as part of your study. In our next section, part three, we'll talk about the CT findings. Thank you.